From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Kale. It's a vegetable touted for its cholesterol-lowering properties, but actually it may pose a risk when it's contaminated with a heavy metal. We'll get the latest on kale as well as coconut oil, coffee, and the MIND diet for pumping up your brain power. Also on the program, the FDA recently approved a drug for treating women with low libido. Just who will benefit from this little pink pill? And mineral oil, a home remedy for constipation, has been linked to serious problems in children. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shine. And I'm Tracy McRae. Kale. Yeah. Heard about it, yeah. Touted as one of the world's <laughs> healthiest vegetables. You know, it's high on the list of foods for people who want to lower their cholesterol and presumably reduce the risk of getting cancer. But recently, kale has been linked to some undesirable side effects. The Things dark like, side yeah, of kale. Yeah, the dark side of kale. Mm-hmm. Things like chronic fatigue, skin and hair problems, and certain neurological issues. Here to talk about the latest on kale, as well as some other nutrition-related topics that we've been saving up for him, is Dr. Donald Hensrud. Dr. Hensrud is a specialist in internal and preventative medicine at Mayo Clinic. He is also editor-in-chief of the Mayo Clinic Diet, as well as several other books on diet and healthy eating. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Hensrud. Happy to be here, Tracy and Dr. Shah. Donald, nice to have you. So a lot of people, cuckoo for kale. (laughs) What's the big deal? Well, kale is a very nutritious food. It is very low in calories, so it's low in calorie density, but it's very high in many different nutrients, so high in nutrient density. So you can get a a big bang for your buck, so to speak, when you're eating kale. It's high in a couple of carotenoid compounds, lutein and zeaxanthin, that have been linked with uh, macular degeneration and cataracts. It's high in vitamin C, vitamin K, a little bit of calcium, little protein, little fiber. It's got a little bit of everything in there. So that's why it's been one of the, quote, superfoods in recent years. So where's it been all our life? It actually, it's been around. It's been around the world. It's served in, in many different countries in various ways. And these things kind of go in cycles. You've all heard about, you know, the foods come and go. And, and kale's been at the top of the list in recent years. I think it's important to keep in mind there are a lot of other great foods, too. It's in the same family as broccoli and cauliflower, and those have beneficial effects on cancer also. So it's not that it's, you know, the be-all, end-all, but it's one of the more nutritious foods that we can we can eat, if you like it. You have to be practical and, and enjoy your food, Oh, too. you just have to find a way to like it. That's what it's all about. Okay, so what's enough the... butter on there. <laughs> Salt Saute it with a little olive oil. Yeah. Okay, but what's the problem? Too much of it must be the problem. Well, a couple of things. It's been linked with uh, possible thyroid issues. That hasn't really panned out so much. And this business about thallium, this comes from a report, not a scientific report, but a report of a practitioner on the West Coast who noticed that some of his patients were having a lot of symptoms and linked it to this uh, thallium that kale takes up. It is true that kale does take up a little bit of thallium. I don't think we've really vetted these reports, though, scientifically yet. Um, There's some possible associations there, and, and whether it pans out, 
once it uh, goes under the rigor of scientific co- confirmation, I think then we'll know a little bit more. You tasted kale? I drink. I, well, you I drink eat, kale. I drink kale, yes, <laughs> in green juice. smoothies, and I had some for lunch yesterday. I chop it up and some quinoa, and I made a bowl out of it, Tom, with some beets. It was wonderful. The checker cholesterol. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one, let's talk one, about oh, one thing. Just one thing about kale and smoothies: when you freeze it, it gets a little little sweet, and so people enjoy that also. And it makes some pretty good chips too. Yeah, that one I'm working on. I can't get the recipe quite right, so I just stick with the smoothies. Are, is there uh, some areas in the country where you can grow kale where there is no thallium in the soil, if you're concerned about that? Uh, good question. I don't know the answer to that. I su- assume most places do not have a large amount of thallium in the soil. It's just some uh, idiosyncratic thing that in this area there may that there happens to be some. And most plants that grow most fruits and vegetables don't take up thallium? Is that is that it? Most don't. Kale and some others do. And that's where the issue Not comes to in. worry. Not to worry. Little thallium point. never hurt anybody. <laughs> I'm a little more worried about coffee because I like it. I pay very close attention when the studies come in that say coffee is good for you. But the last one that I heard is like, maybe you're drinking too much coffee. And I get a little nervous about my coffee being taken away from me. Again, I think, you know, with like a lot of things, we go back and forth on this. It's good. It's bad. And the truth usually lies somewhere in between. If you look at the total body of literature on coffee, it does seem to have some pretty good health benefits. Decreased risk of type 2 diabetes in a number of studies. Decreased risk of liver disease, liver cancer, uh, protection against Parkinson's disease possibly dementia. So the list goes on and on. It, it's a stimulant, as we all know. It, it decreases reaction time, so you react faster. It improves mood, cognition, decreased risk of depression. So there's quite a long list. From a health standpoint, coffee in general is much more healthy than the risks associated. The problem with coffee is the side effects. And some people are more susceptible than the side effects uh, to the side effects than others. We metabolize it on a genetic basis. So some people metabolize caffeine quickly. Oh, really? Other people slowly. And that explains why my wife can have a cup of coffee and go to sleep. And if I have one in the afternoon, I'm up all night. I'm more susceptible Hmm. to it. Other side effects, heartburn for some people, uh, palpitations. Too much can cause people to become nervous and irritable. So if you suffer from the side effects, then it's time to back off. But overall, it's a relatively healthy drink for those people who don't have a lot of side effects. All right, the gluten-free craze. You go to the grocery store, and half of what you see is gluten-free. Now, it's like half the population has celiac disease, (laughs) and and we know that's not the case. So what is the deal with gluten-free foods? So if you really look at the data, less than up to 1% of people in this country and around the world have celiac disease. Meaning they can't uh, metabolize gluten. It's an immune condition. And they really need to avoid gluten because they will suffer uh, nutritional and other health effects from gluten. One out of 100. One out of 100. There may be a couple percent or so. We don't know the exact amount who have gluten sensitivity. That means they get symptoms from gluten, such as bloating, uh, diarrhea. Uh, People describe a brain fog. That may be a couple percent of people. So there's a small percentage of people, either with celiac or gluten sensitivity, that probably shouldn't have it. They feel better. There's a whole bunch of people who are avoiding gluten for health reasons, and that is misguided. If you look at the data on whole grains, they're associated with reduced risk of heart disease, some cancers. And so in general, whole grains that contain gluten are beneficial, providing you don't have celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. So the whole marketing thing, 20 to 25% of people avoiding gluten for health reasons, 
They should reconsider and enjoy some whole wheat pasta, whole, whole wheat bread, and other foods that contain gluten. All right. I'm glad you cleared that up. We have a question from someone who's watching us on Periscope right now, and they want to know about overall reducing your carbs. So overall carb reduction in hopes that it will help with people who have problems with inflammation. Yeah, good question. You know, and, and again, looking at the big picture, we've gone back and forth. Years ago, if every everybody was trying to eat a, a low-fat, high-carb diet, then we turned it on its end. Everybody was eating a high-fat, low-carb diet, and now gluten's the bad guy, so we're into protein these days. In terms of carbs and inflammation, there's some data, uh, mostly uh, test tube data, in vitro data, about inflammation and carbohydrate. Uh, this became popular through a book called uh, uh, Grain Brain. I, I think it takes it a little bit too far. It's true that there may be some low, very low levels of inflammation. Whether that actually contributes to disease or not hasn't been conclusively shown. And the, what, what, what I recommend, what we recommend here at Mayo in terms of carbs and fat, you don't have to go very low carb or very low fat. Just try and avoid less healthy carbs and less healthy fats. So cut down on simple sugars. Absolutely. We eat far too many simple sugars, and that may be reflected in the dietary guidelines that are coming out uh, later this year. Uh, try and avoid processed flour. Eat more whole grains, and that can you can still get some carbs, and, and keep your inflammation level low if you want to. You had mentioned uh, referencing coffee. You know, you and your wife metabolize coffee differently. Would there be um, something to the comment that people would metabolize their carbohydrates differently? Could there be something to that? Has that been studied? Well, it, I mean, people do metabolize different carbohydrates differently. Lactose intolerance, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, lactose is a simple sugar. And some people have lactase uh, deficiency or lactose intolerance, and they metabolize it differently. But in general, there's nothing. I don't think we need to avoid carbs altogether. Just stick with the healthier carbs. All right, we're about out of time. What about the coconut craze and coconut water? Anything? Well, so coconut <laughs> is a saturated, it mainly contains saturated fat, about 90% of it. Lauric acid is a medium-chain saturated fat, which is high in coconuts, and it doesn't seem to raise LDL or bad cholesterol as much as long-chain fatty acids. So that's true. It doesn't affect cholesterol as much as what we thought. And it has good taste and, and texture and everything. Uh, but, boy, the things I'm seeing about coconut, it can cure everything from cancer to Alzheimer's, and, and I think people are going out on a limb on that one. So it's okay, but you wouldn't pay up for it? No. It's delicious, Tom. Delicious. <laughs> we're sure talking we're talking with Mayo Clinic Nutrition and Healthy Eating Specialist, Dr. Donald Hensrud. We're gonna take a short break and when we come back, myth or matter of fact, the mind diet combines the best of two diets that help to improve brain power. M I N D. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. Our guest, health and nutrition expert, Dr. Donald Hensrud. He is also editor-in-chief of the Mayo Clinic Diet Book. There are so many of them out there, including the Mayo Clinic Diet, and they seem to all be fads to a certain degree. Yours is, is really a lifestyle change more than it is a diet. But now the popular one is the MIND, the M-I-N-D Diet. 
Myth or matter of fact, does it combine the best of two diets to improve brain power? That's a fact. Okay. Uh, it does. So people have been looking at how diet can affect the risk of dementia for a long time. We know, for example, that physical activity is one of the most powerful things that people can do to preserve cognition and decrease the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. In terms of diet, people have looked at different things, and there's some evidence uh, with different foods. So what these researchers did, they took two different diets. One is the traditional Mediterranean diet. Mainly they looked at the Greek version, and there are different Mediterranean diets too, depending on where in the Mediterranean you go. And they looked at the DASH diet. The DASH diet has been around for a long time. It was originally designed for high blood pressure, been studied a lot, and uh, does seem to have some beneficial effects not only on high blood pressure but other things. So they t combined these two diets, and they took... Uh, 900 people. They followed them for a number of years. They asked them, which of these foods do you eat? And they looked at the foods that were associated with the least amount of cognitive decline. In other words, mm. people who are eating certain foods, the, their cognition, their mind power declined faster than people who were eating other more beneficial foods. To some extent, this is kind of, you know, we tend to label diets, and there are common foods in all these diets that are good. No surprise, vegetables, fruits, fish, olive oil, uh, whole grains, chicken and poultry, uh, even a little bit of wine and beans. They took a couple of food categories and took them one step farther. In vegetables, leafy greens seem to be very beneficial, such as kale. Is that kale again. That's right. <laughs> Nutrition powerhouses and not a lot of calories. And among fruits, berries seem to do the best. We've known that berries are high in antioxidants for quite some time. Blueberries received all the attention, but they're all good. Blackberries, raspberries, strawberries, they're all high in antioxidants. Those types of foods seem to be associated with less cognitive decline. Foods that were associated with faster cognitive decline, and there's really no surprise here, red meat, butter and margarine, uh, pastries and sweets, fried and fast foods. So it, we tend to label things, but if we look at just kind of what are the more beneficial foods in general, this is on, the, the foods I mentioned earlier are on many of the, of the lists. But what does DASH stand for? Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. That diet is, consists, consists of 8 to 10 servings of fruits and vegetables a day, but a serving isn't that big. It's a half cup of broccoli. I could eat that in three bites. Mm -hmm. Whole grains, fish. Uh, a little olive oil, a little nuts, and not a lot of animal products, meat and high-fat dairy products. But, you know, this is basically the same message that you've been uh, bringing t to the table for years. So it's not so much a problem of knowing what we should eat. It's a problem of actually doing it. How do, how do you work on that problem? You're exactly right, Tom. You know, we, again, we tend to label things, and there are certain foods, a plant-based diet that emerges as beneficial for health in a number of different ways. Applying that in our lives can be challenging, but it's not impossible. Many people f say that when I was eating better, I felt better, or when I weighed a little bit less. They need to listen to that. And it doesn't have to be impossible in our, in our busy lives either. There are quick and healthy things. People can keep uh, different foods on the pantry to go for if they don't have a lot of time. Even eating out in fast foods. There are different sandwiches that people can choose, throw on the a lot of vegetables and things like that. There are a lot of things we can do in our busy lives to make a difference in the, in the way we're eating. I want to ask you, you know, we're all concerned about dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and partly because we're living longer. How about your favorite brain foods? Leafy, I like leafy greens for a lot of things. Kale? 
kale, it, whatever you like, <laughs> spinach. I like arugula myself. I love the spiciness of it. But And vegetables, not only for brain food, but because they have so many beneficial effects on heart disease, cancer, their nutrient powerhouses. Fish has been associated uh, with a uh, little bit of cognitive preservation. Uh, nuts are good. Berries. Yeah, what nuts should we be eating? Good question. The ones you like. Okay, so every, any of them are good. Every nut has a different nutrient profile. Mm-hmm. Brazil nuts are high in selenium and, in, and high in magnesium. Pistachios are high in pot- potassium. So if you eat mixed nuts, you get the benefits of all their beneficial nutrient profiles. Gotcha. I just hope I can remember what he said. <laughs> I hope so, too. Now, you mentioned a little while ago about the new dietary guidelines. Those are changing this year? Every five years, the government comes out with new dietary guidelines. And this, like a lot of nutrition, should be looked at as evolutionary and not revolutionary. So it's not going to change dramatically from five years to five years, but they refine the message. Some things that are they're emphasizing this year, one is no surprise, decreased sugar intake. They're taking a stronger stance on that. The American Heart Association did a few years ago. And sugar, to me, this is a no-brainer. It's a quadruple whammy, meaning there are four negative things regarding sugar in our diet, added sugars, not uh, sugars in fruit. Number one, it's empty calories. It adds a lot of calories. Number two, there's no nutritional value. Unlike kale, that has a lot of different micronutrients, sugar has no micronutrients, and you need nutrients to help digest the carbohydrate. Number three, if you're drinking soda, for example, with sugar, you're not drinking something else that's probably healthier. And number four, there is some evidence, as we talked about earlier, that that sugar has a mild toxic effect in terms of inflammation. So there's a number of reasons to decrease our sugar intake, and the dietary guidelines are going to come out stronger on that. Another issue is they're going to emphasize less uh, red meat and processed meat for the first time, uh, at least in the draft of it, that's associated with uh, colon cancer, heart disease. So it doesn't mean everybody has to become a vegetarian, but in general for the health benefits, decreasing that. And finally, the last thing that may not make it into the guidelines is a little controversial. They talked about a sustainable food supply, and Congress said stay out of that area. Interesting. Uh, they put it in anyway that we need to look at uh, sustainable food supply. Whether that goes into the final uh, version or not uh, remains to be seen. What do you mean sustainable food supply? Think about the environment. So fish, for example, don't uh, fish out different species of fish and go green with the environment in terms of thinking about the environment and not just depleting the soil and, and not worrying about the consequences of some of the things we're doing with our foods. Thanks very much, Dr. Hensrud, for bringing us up to date on a variety of diet and nutrition topics. Dr. Donald Hensrud is a specialist in internal and preventive medicine at Mayo Clinic. He's also editor-in-chief of the Mayo Clinic Diet. Thanks, Dr. Hensrud. Pleasure. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, the FDA recently approved a new drug for women with low libido problems. We'll get the details on that new drug and on a new study that links everyday mindfulness with improving sexual health. And the risks of using mineral oil to relieve constipation, especially in young children. If you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news from Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. What's the skinny on saturated and trans fats? I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
Saturated fats come from animal products like dairy and meat, and Canadian researchers found they are okay in moderation for most healthy people. Trans fats are mostly manufactured and called partially hydrogenated fats, but are associated with an increased risk of death. So the type of fat you eat may really matter. And let's talk about making sure our kids eat right as they head back to school. Having good nutrition could lead to good academic outcomes for children. Mayo Clinic Dr. Brian Lynch says try to steer clear of highly processed foods and push whole grains, lean meats, and fruits and veggies. So what if your kid wants a sugar-sweetened drink? Well, research in the journal BMJ shows drinking them regularly is associated with increased risk of type 2 diabetes. For more health and medical news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, after twice rejecting it, the Food and Drug Administration last month approved Philbanserin, the little pink pill. And it presumably will enhance the sexual drive in women with low libido. The drug has been dubbed by some as female Viagra. Well, that helps us to describe what it's for, doesn't it? <laughs> Here to talk about the newly approved drug and about a new study of how to improve sexual health is Dr. Jordan Rulo. Dr. Rulo is a clinical psychologist and certified sex therapist at the Women's Health Clinic at Mayo Clinic here in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rulo. Thank you for having me. Well, they finally approved this drug, which uh, has been anticipated by a lot of people, probably more men than women. <laughs> oh, wait. But it was denied two times previously yep, by denied. the FDA? Exactly. Mm-hmm. What's the problem and why did they finally approve it? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, the main problem, I think the reason why the FDA was having difficulty approving it is all the side effects. Uh, the side effects, and there was a lot of argument that uh, it didn't work much better than placebo. So placebo is just giving a woman uh, a sugar pill and saying, see how this impacts your desire, versus giving them this medication that has a bunch of side effects and saying, see how this impacts your desire. So there's a few ways they measured this medication to see, is this better than just a sugar pill? Or a glass of wine. Or a glass of wine, wine, which you cannot have if you're taking this medication, by the way. (laughs) So that really makes you sick. You take this medication, you can't drink. You cannot drink. And this, unlike, well, okay, there's so many things to say about this. (laughs) So let me just back up a little bit more. Um, So people are calling it the female Viagra, because that's an easy way to think about it. But Viagra is really for arousal. Viagra is about about bringing blood flow to the genitals. Mm -hmm. Um, This pill, It's not about desire at all. Exactly. It's about performance. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Except for this pill, Addy or Flabanserin, um, is about desire. So it's not about performance. It's about desire, your want to be sexual. Um, So unlike Viagra, which is take it when you need it, the day of, hour before, this pill is take it every day at night before you go to bed. So this is an everyday pill, which means that as long as you are on this, you cannot be drinking alcohol, which is funny because we know that alcohol actually does help. Yeah. With desire. <laughs> That's what I said. And and the difference between that placebo and the inflobanserin was mm-hmm. 4.4 times per month versus 3.7 times per month of, for the women who were on placebo. Right. So they measured it. So one of the ways they, they measured this drug compared to the sugar pill, the placebo, was 
sexually satisfying events. So they predicted if you're on this pill, you should have many more sexually satisfying events on this pill versus being on the sugar pill. But what they found is that women reported just about one more sexually satisfying event per month. And that was one of the big things that FDA was getting hung up on, is one more sexually satisfying event worth all the potential side effects you're going to have to deal with when being on this medication. But there are really two other ways uh, that they measured this pill as well. And they, and they added these measures later on in their trial. But the two other ways they measured it, uh, two questionnaires. So one asked about just the woman's self-report of her desire. So how much desire does she feel? And then the second one was her self-report of how distressed she is about her sexual desire. So how distressed are you and how much desire do you think you have? Totally self-report. And those two measures, the woman reported significantly more desire on the pill versus the sugar pill Hmm. and significantly less distress on the pill versus the sugar pill. So it's those two measures that really, I think, give flibanserin some extra boost to say, okay, this may be an effective medication. Maybe. Maybe. This may be. (laughs) What are some of the other risks? Um, so there's nausea, dizziness, the alcohol piece is a drop in blood pressure. Those are the main side effects. And and who would for one half more time? <laughs> less than seven, one. Less than one, <laughs> one time per month. Per month. Take this pill. I, I don't quite understand Well, so it. that's just the sexually satisfying events, that, that additional one time yeah. per month. But think about if just if you feel like, huh, I feel like my desire is better and I am less distressed then maybe you might want to take the pill. Maybe you're not even having any more sex, but you feel better. Oh, just uh, distress in general, not distress. Sexual about distress. Sex. Yeah. Sexual, Sexual distress. distress. That you're upset that, you, yeah, that it's something that's bothering you. Right. right. You're less sexually distressed and you feel like your desires more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interesting to not look at it as that, the amount of times that the woman has sex, but uh-huh. the distress and the satisfaction that you feel throughout the day. That's and so, interesting. And researchers are arguing that the your self-report of distress and your desire is probably a better measure of this drug than sexually satisfying events, because just like you mentioned before, this, this drug isn't about performance. If you were measuring performance, you probably would want to count the number of times you're having sex per month, but we're not measuring performance. We're measuring desire. And what's the best measure we have of desire? What a woman says her desire is. Go so ahead. So you're not a big fan of philbanserin? No, no, no. No, not at all. I think that philbanserin is going to be great for a subset of women. So they, what's interesting is they tested it only on premenopausal women. But we know one of the big concerns with desire is in postmenopausal women. So sure. my, my patients who probably need this the most... They're not even eligible for it. There's the postmenopausal women. Mm. So this is for pre... Oh, it's not approved for postmenopausal women. Nope. It's for premenopausal women because that's who it was tested on. So it's for premenopausal women, and it's specifically designed for women who report that their only concern is low desire. It's not nothing about the relationship. It's not that they're too tired. It's not that they're stressed out. It's just, hey, I'm fine. I'm not stressed. Everything's going well. I have time to be sexual. I don't know. I just don't want to be. I don't know why. That's a very... I mean, I see some of those women. It's a very small percentage of women that I see. So I think phlebanserin will be great for those women. It's a small percentage. And I know from speaking with you in the past that uh, I would predict you would say there are other ways to improve your sex yes. life. <laughs> and that, that'll bring us to our next topic of discussion. Yes. Okay. So um, if we think about desire, uh, it's so much more complex than perhaps just taking a medication for most women. Um, so 
low desire is caused by a variety of things. There could be biological factors. It could be psychological factors. You're stressed. You're sad. It could be you don't like your partner, so why in the world would you desire to have sex with them? Lots of different factors. Um, one of the main factors that impacts desire is being distracted, being stressed out, not being able to really be present. So over the past five or so years, there have been some really neat research studies that have looked at the concept of mindfulness. Oh, it's like the buzzword. It is the buzzword, yeah. <laughs> mindfulness. Um, mindfulness is helpful for anxiety, depression, pain reduction, a lot of different areas. But we're learning that mindfulness is actually really helpful for women with low desire, women who have difficulty with their sexual arousal, and for women who have orgasm problems. So we have this awesome mindfulness program here at Mayo uh, taught by Dr. Amit Sood mm -hmm. called the SMART program, which mm -hmm. stands for Stress Management and Resiliency Training. And what's really neat about the SMART program is it teaches mindfulness uh, in everyday little, little nuggets. So basically you learn mindfulness seven minutes a day, seven minutes a day, and you just kind of sprinkle it into your day. And I thought, well, what if we take this SMART program and use it for women's sexual health? So instead of teaching women mindfulness and saying, now you're going to have to go home and you have to do hours of homework and you're going to meditate and you're going to read this and learn mindfulness. And so this will take you several hours a week. What if we just sprinkle this uh, Dr. Sood's SMART program, the seven minutes a day, just sprinkle it into a woman's life, but direct it toward her sexual health? Will that be helpful? So I don't know the answer, but <laughs> we're doing a research study to look just at this. And this is an online research study. So we're recruiting couples. Uh, so specifically, we're recruiting women because what we're looking at is, is this study going to help their desire, their arousal, their orgasm? So we're recruiting women and their partners. doesn't matter if their partner is male or female. So women and their partners do this online program. They'll do Dr. Sood's SMART online course, and then they'll do uh, a sexual education mindfulness course that's connected to do a smart course. Anyone can do this except for the woman, the main participant in the study, has to come to the Mayo Clinic at least once to fill out informed consent. So it takes about an hour and a half to do all the paperwork to say, yes, I'm willing to be in this study. But that after that one visit, go back home, chat with your partner about it, get your partner on board, and then participate in the online program. How can people get hooked up with you to take part in this study? Great question. So a couple places they can either call. Uh, so we have a research coordinator who will answer the phone, who can tell them more about the study, make sure they're eligible, and walk them through how to do it. So the phone number is 507-266-1944. So they can call or they can email uh, so the email address is d-o-m-c-r-o, domcro, at mayo.edu. Is this for anyone who wants to improve their sexual health or sexual relationship? So it's not though for those who are having a problem? It is for women who are reporting that they are distressed about their desire, their arousal, or their orgasm. Um, so you have to be a woman over the age of 18. You have to have a partner who's willing to do these activities, this, this online course with you. It doesn't matter how long you've been with that partner. They just have to be willing to um, do the activities with you. And you have to report that you're distressed in some way with your desire, arousal, or orgasm. We've been talking with Mayo Clinic psychologist and sex therapist Dr. Jordan Rulo about a new study of the role that everyday mindfulness can play in improving sexual health. Thanks for being on the program Dr. Rillo. Thank you for having me. Good to have you. We'll take a short break. When we come back, mineral oil has long been used as an over-the-counter treatment for constipation. But using mineral oil to relieve constipation in young children may have serious consequences. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Mineral oil, that clear, thick liquid you get at the drugstore, well, it's often used as a home remedy for constipation. And take it by mouth, it helps keep water in the stool, and that makes it softer and easier to pass. Oh, spoken like a true dad. <laughs> it's been a long time since you've had to worry about potty training, though, yeah, right, thank Tom? goodness, yes. Well, mineral oil is not recommended for older adults, people who are confined to a bed, and to children who are younger than six years of age. Well, a recently published study of a five-year-old who developed juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or JRA, that means juvenile, young, idiopathic, meaning we don't know what caused it, and of course you know what arthritis is. Well, they found, this case study, found an association between the arthritis and daily doses of mineral oil. Here to talk about the case study is its author, Dr. Mark Wylam. Dr. Wylam is a specialist in pediatric and adolescent medicine at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Wylam, welcome to the program. Nice to have you. Good morning. So tell us a little bit about this study. Uh, pretty interesting. What, what prompted you to study this five-year-old boy? This case came uh, in the usual sense that uh, there was an arthritis that was unexplained in cause. The rheumatologists who were caring for the child here at Mayo Clinic noticed an abnormality on the chest X-ray. And at that time, it was just a, a vague abnormality. And the mother then reported that the child did have a cough. So we have two things going on, both our unexplained arthritis and cough. Uh, we performed a bronchoscopy uh, to sort of understand the nature of the cough. Now, the bronchoscopy? That would be a fiber optic exam of the bronchial tubes, if you will. So you stick a tube down through the throat? Down through down the, the throat, throat under, the... under anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And we, we flushed some salt water in and out of the lung to sort of examine for potential germs and other, other um, foreign material. We found oil. Surprisingly, it was a surprise to us. And then we went back to the mother, and in more detail uh, history taking, we learned that ever since uh, near birth, uh, on the recommendation of her mother, that she would keep the child's bowels regular by twice-daily administration of mineral oil, as a laxative, as you were discussing. Okay. As you said, how did the mineral oil get in the lung? Well, oils applied to the upper airway, the mouth, or even the nostrils can inadvertently, when swallowed, uh, slide past the epiglottis into the, uh, uh, into the airway. Oh, my gosh. So we call this lipoid pneumonia, uh, lipoid because it's fat or oil, and uh, these can enter into the lung from things as innocuous as uh, vapor rubs, et cetera, applied to the nose sure. for hydration. I would say we often see that in older folks who have chronic dry nasal passages and uh, year by year by year enough oil accumulates to deposit into the lung and cause uh, what looks like a pneumonia or a chronic cough condition. So and she was giving wow. just spoonfuls of mineral oil to the child? I believe it was of the nature of teaspoon twice a day hmm. at least. Hmm. Yeah, for uh, presumably to prevent constipation. The child wasn't constipated, were they? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then explain the arthritis, the juvenile arthritis in there. now we get into the realm of speculation, but it's an interesting speculation. Since the 1950s, scientists who were developing vaccines would often dissolve bacteria that they wanted to make a vaccine towards in oils and inject it into persons to hope that that would stimulate an immune response, maybe to develop protective immunity against tuberculosis and such. Um, They also found that all sorts of vaccines could have their effect enhanced by oils. But they also found when they eliminated the bacteria parts and just injected the oil that there was also an enhancement of the immune system. So even to this day, some vaccines are fortified, if you will, with 
traces of oil to stimulate the immune system. And subsequently, we learned that internally ingested into the body, oils can stimulate the immune reactions. More recently, in, in the last decade, um, studies have shown that large populations of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, for example, uh, have a higher propensity to have occupational exposures to oil. So there's a quite significant enhanced incidence of, of rheumatoid arthritis in, in persons uh, inadvertently in, ingesting, uh, even through the skin, oils. Well, wow, so this kind of arthritis that your, the, the five-year-old boy had is somewhat similar to rheumatoid arthritis in that it's an immune system arthritis, in a fact, hyperreaction it, of the immune system. Its old name was juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And we know that juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and, and rheumatoid arthritis in adults is some bit dependent on your genetics and some bit dependent on what turns on your immune system when you have those genetics. Now, again... Population studies would suggest that mineral oils might be one of those things that turn on a predisposed person. Uh, and in this particular case, we had ample exposure. And it isn't all that common to see it uh, with this degree of difficulty in, in the management of this child. So, uh, again, we can't, we can't draw a one-to-one -one here, but it's, it's quite provoking uh, to think that in incidental exposures to oils, um, particularly when they have second uh, in impairments like lipoid pneumonia, uh, an extra reason to avoid them. So uh, is it a common practice uh, still to this day for parents to use mineral oil to presumably prevent constipation? Strong recommendation to the contrary. Uh, that is to say we, we don't recommend it. We have all other alternatives. But it's fairly common? Uh, we still find it in, you know, it's passed down by generation by generation. So Grandma, I think, uh, huh? grandmas, uh, don't, don't, I don't want to incriminate all the grandmothers no, out no, there. No, but, no, 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 but you to, said uh, that it was the mother, uh, the, mother's the mother's mother who would have had done it the same way. So I, suspect, I suspect when we had lesser therapies for uh, constipation, some of the non-absorbable uh, sugars and the like that can pull water in and, and, and function more safely, uh, mineral oils were probably... Uh, part of the armamentarium. We were talking about, uh, at the beginning, uh, my script said that it's not good for people who are confined to bed, so older adults or younger than six. What about that middle time in there? What about from six to when you're elderly? Is that okay? I'm not quite sure. I mean, this is a little outside my normal zone of practice, but uh, it, it's easy for me to see during bronchoscopy that we all have a, a risk for swallowing things quote, down the wrong way. Uh, <laughs> normally those things are food and salt and, and, and liquids. Oils, of course, are propensity to bypass that flapper valve, the epiglottis. And uh, again, I would say that chronic ingestion of, of oils at any age group would probably promote a potential mm. risk for aspiration into the lung. You deal with, uh, with children. Is there ever a reason for a parent to give their child mineral oil for constipation or anything else? Again, um, as a practitioner of, let's say, cystic fibrosis, where all of our patients there have a high propensity to constipation and, and bowel obstruction, we never use mineral oil. That yes. was, that You're was not a fan, it doesn't sound like. <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah, not a fan. Um, and anything else that you learned from this case study of this young boy? Well, one of the things is that oils, when ingested, and when they do enter the lung, take a a long time to be uh, eliminated from the lung. So we've done follow-up over the years in this child, and um, the lung does not clear oil very well. It doesn't have a mechanism for clearing oil. 
the macrophages, which are the cells that engulf the oil, uh, they have a certain lifespan, and when they die, they release the oil, and a new macrophage takes it up. So once in the lung, it's, it's pretty improbable to get a lot of uh, clearance of the oil. And even if you give it by mouth, there's a chance it's going to end up in the lung. To my way of thinking. Tough uh, for the body to get rid of it. Tough to, yeah. And Dr. Mark Wylam, he's a specialist in pediatric and adolescent medicine at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Wylam, thanks for being with us. Thank you. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. Some of our guests are recorded during a Periscope session. Get the app for iOS or Android, follow Mayo Clinic, and join us. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 